I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. This podcast is an exploration of ghostly folklore and its relationship to the cultures that produce it. I don't know where or when you are listening to this, but I hope that it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 69, Interview with Trevor Blank. I'm joined today by Trevor Blank, who is a folklorist, and uh, I'm going to allow you to introduce yourself because I'm sure you could do it better than I would. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You introduced me perfectly. I'm a folklorist by training. Uh, I'm also associate professor of communication at the State University of New York at Potsdam and currently serving as the director of the Potsdam Public Museum in Potsdam, New York, where I uh, gather things on local history and folklore for the local congregants to come and check out. Very good. And out of curiosity, given your particular background research, how did you end up at the museum? Uh, well, I ended up at the museum because uh, I, I grew to love Potsdam. I've been teaching here for about 11 years. The college is kind of undergoing a bit of a transitional period where some programs are being cut or shortened. And so actually, the last couple of years, I ended up predominantly teaching in the college's prison program, where I teach at Riverview Correctional Facility in Ogdensburg, New York. So rather than being on campus, I've mostly been in a prison uh, teaching folklore courses and writing courses and public speaking classes to students who are working uh, under the Second Chance Pell Grant program, which enables incarcerated individuals in New York State to be able to work towards a college degree at SUNY Potsdam while they're actually incarcerated. And uh, if they complete the program uh, or don't complete the program before they finish, uh, they're able to actually transfer to finishing their coursework on campus and finish their degree once they get out. So it's a it's a wonderful program. That's where a lot of my time shifted in SUNY Potsdam. The program is not particularly big, and my program in communication was uh, one of the ones that's being discontinued. So I wanted to find a way that I could stay in the area, continue to work at the prison part-time, but also stay in Potsdam full-time. And fortunately, an opportunity came up for a director of the Potsdam Public Museum, and it was a natural fit because a lot of my work in folklore and history is very much at the local level. A lot of what folklorists do is talk to people in local and regional context to try to find out what local culture is like through people's own lived experiences. And so it was a natural extension of kind of uh, a lot of my uh, academic work, but an opportunity to provide a public service in doing so was really an exciting opportunity to stay in Potsdam, stay connected to the community that I've grown to love and call home, but serve in a different capacity rather than so much academic where I have been at SUNY Potsdam. This is more of a public facing sort of venture where I get to work with people who live in the community on everything from historic preservation to collecting stories about people's experiences of living and growing up here. Really want to talk to you now about teaching folklore to prisoners. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's great. I mean, actually, it's one of those environments that you may not on the surface think is a great place for folklore to spread, but it's actually one of the most natural places for folklore to spread. Everything is symbolic, uh, like there's symbolic behaviors and organization between people. There are sayings, there are rituals that people follow in order to keep sane or to stay safe. There's proverbs and other 
folk wisdom and sayings that people have accumulated from their time of being inside. There's jokes that have that can only have been formulated from somebody who's been incarcerated. And so there's a very unique perspective. It's often off limits to most of the mainstream public. We we often tend to think of incarcerated individuals as society's garbage or people who have done something wrong, so they need to be forgotten. But in a, most of the cases that I found, with the, at least with the people who've been in the college programs I've been teaching in, it's a lot of people who have who were born into very difficult circumstances, have struggled with drug abuse or socioeconomic disadvantage, and have made a couple of mistakes a lot of times when they were really young, and they're still paying for it now. Very interesting, thoughtful, deep thinking, deep feeling people um, that are very eager to share their stories, their experiences. And so um, actually in my folklore classes in the prison, I, I have students do uh, what's called ethnography or basically field work where they go out and collect the culture that they live in, whether it's their own experiences or their colleagues in the program or other people that, that they see, or even sometimes the corrections officers culture as well that they observe. So there's a lot of stuff to break down, it, but it's it's generally been inaccessible. There hasn't been a lot of work in folklore studies done on prisons really since the 70s and 80s, because it's been prohibitive to get inside. I just ended up teaching in the program and was lucky enough to be a folklorist and thought, well, you know, while I'm having these students learn these different practices of how to do research in a confined environment, why not give them research that forces them to engage with their peers and talk about the different things that and different ways that they make meaning in their everyday lives, which is really what folklore is about. It's about how people express themselves and find meaning in their everyday lives. Even the stuff that seems mundane has a traditional component to it that ties communities together, ties people together, ties people's experiences together. It's universal. It's it's not a static phenomenon. Folklore is something that continues to evolve and morph as it meets new people and new communities and new contexts. So prison has been a, a really interesting way because I, I started my career in folklore kind of doing the opposite. I studied digital folklore, which is what we're going to be talking about predominantly today. So I was in a very expansive world where everything was limitless. And working in a prison has been kind of the complete inverse of that, where everything is very insular. But the same kind of rules of communication still apply. So there's a lot to be gained from talking to people about their experiences. And I've learned a tremendous amount about what it's like to be an incarcerated individual, good and bad, but also have found a lot of really interesting stuff along the way. So we can definitely go down that rabbit hole sometime if you'd like. I, I have many stories to tell. I was trained in archaeology, and it makes me think of some of the work done in Britain in the 70s and early 80s, where archaeologists took a fascination to imprisoned IRA members and the activities they got up to. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because people share traditions. I mean, folklore traditionally has been something that was a genre that was thought to be mostly orally transmitted. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, that's part of why I was able to make a career in studying digital folklore is a lot of my teachers, when I first went to graduate school, were like, you can't study digital folklore. It's not oral transmission. It doesn't really count. It's not <laughs> real folklore. And, uh, and having grown up around that, I knew that that was bogus and decided to push onward with that as well, because I knew that to not be true. But there is something about oral transmission that folklorists have traditionally gravitated towards. And that's part of why some of the work um, in the prison has been 
much more traditional folklore kind of work than what I've been typically accustomed to. And I've kind of enjoyed it, which is, again, is part of the reason why I ended up at the museum too, is I I like new challenges. I've been doing digital folklore for, you know, 10, 15 years. And uh, there's a lot more people now doing that kind of work. There there wasn't in 2007 and 2008, believe it or not, even even in the early 2000s, there wasn't tons of folklorists doing that kind of work. But now it's it's kind of a robust sub-discipline within folklore. And I don't feel as urgent of a pool person to contribute to that academic dialogue as much. And and so I've found newfangled ways to kind of use my experience in the digital realm and in studying folklore to apply it to other underserved areas. And prisons was, was kind of a natural fit for me in that regard. So, you know, you mentioned that you got a lot of pushback early on about studying digital folklore. And that, I have to admit, seems strange to me because I remember being in college in the mid 90s and you know, getting online for the first time uh, at the same time that I was you know, doing my undergrad degree in anthropology. So, of course, I had to do some you know, basic level folklore. And it was just glaringly obvious that a lot of what was online was folklore. Yes. Why, why do you think there was such a resistance to accepting that? Well, I think there was a couple main reasons. One, uh, I mean, I used to hear the classic argument: there's no field to do field work in when you are, when you're online. There's no physical space to see how people are interacting to something in a room. When you see a chat room, you're missing the emotional connection that you have to seeing people in person. So there was some of that 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 certainly made people leery of it. But I think also part of it was the internet is much more accessible nowadays than it was in the 90s and 2000s. There, I think there was a hesitation, particularly among scholars that, and, and the, the research backs up in the 90s, the, the internet, especially in America, was predominantly white, predominantly middle class uh, or upper middle class individuals, people who had access to the technology and more dominated by males. It wasn't really until cell phones came along and were able to access the internet and everyone had access to it, even people who didn't have internet connections. I mean, back in 2010, even in 2010, uh, a state like Mississippi still had almost half of the state not have access to anything other than dial up internet connections, even as even as recently as, you know, 13 years ago. So there were still lots of pockets of the United States where people couldn't get into finding these communities. And 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 social media has has also influenced a great deal of how people have been able to adapt. They've they've personalized their experiences online to make it part of their everyday life. Whereas in the early 90s and 2000s, the I mean, the original Internet, I mean, was predominantly used by the military and academics. Mm-hmm. So it was seen as like, you know, these select groups that had privilege to be able to be there. And therefore, um, that I mean, that kind of goes against what we think of when we think of folk. I mean, the the root of folklore folk has historical connections to the idea of the peasant class. So the idea that something being folk is something supposed to be organic that comes from the masses. And how could something be genuinely folkloric if it's being mediated by multi-million dollar corporations that like AOL, that are gatekeepers to some people being able to access it. So I, I understand now some of the hesitation that people had at the time. I still thought it was bogus, though, because even if there are esoteric cultures or privileged cultures and whatnot, they still have folklore. Mm-hmm. Even well-served groups still have their own forms of folklore. 
and I had a feeling and uh, because that's all the history, historical trends would tell us is we've seen it before with television. We've seen it before with the telephone. As more people adopt that technology and it becomes more inseparable from everyday life, people will find ways to make it unique. I mean, early 2000s or late 90s, one of the things that a lot of people did in the online medium was try to find ways to use the limitations to try to express themselves as they would in person. So things like emoticons, the predecessors to emojis and mm -hmm. and other kind of icons that we use now to kind of connote inflection were being utilized to kind of make it so that you could have a textual conversation that had this sort of familiarity to it, like a face-to-face -face conversation. So the example I've often used with my students is if you write, I'm going to kill you and just write that, it's going to sound like a threat. But if you write, I'm going to kill you and then put a smiley face right after it, it connotes I'm going to kill you, or there's something kind of jokey about it, something that calls back to the way that we do face-to-face -face communication. So a lot of early adaptations of, of digital culture were meant to try to make things analogous. Now the internet and social media and digital technologies have, have expanded and advanced so profoundly that now they have unique components to them in and of themselves. And trends can emerge, memes can proliferate, different dialogues can can make their way in certain social media avenues and not in others. There's some people who gravitate more towards Instagram or toward a TikTok, whereas in the past they may have just only had the choice between Facebook and Twitter in like the 2010s where a lot of dialogue took place. So to answer your question, it, it was the hesitation that we were leaving out the actual folk that there was no physical component, there was no material component, so that people were going to be somehow lost or inauthentic. And that also, there's the old, the old New Yorker cartoon from the 90s, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. So there's also this, there was also this uh, worry that people would present inauthentic versions of themselves. And how do we document that, you know? But what I, I've always seen, and part of the reason why digital folklore has carried on, is that we have things like performance studies, and we've seen people who have done masquerade balls who dress up and act different from their authentic self, quote unquote, but nevertheless reveal a beautiful side of themselves in the process. And especially in the context of a group, then the group and the community experience itself gives us information that's, in, that's important that we can parse through and, and help to understand that culture better. So the conclusion I reached pretty quickly is that we already are already hybrid uh, with technology. I think certainly cognitively, most people think about their technologies as, as extension of themselves. I, I've often used the example that, you know, uh, when you send a message on a cell phone, like a text message, you think I sent a text message. You don't think the phone sent a text message. It's mm -hmm. me communicating to somebody else, except for when the technology fails, of course, then it's the technology's fault. <laughs> Or, or when it's conveniently used, oh, no, I didn't get that email. Ooh, yeah, it must have been, uh, must have been lost in the server, you know, and really you just didn't check it or whatever. Like we've used technology as kind of like a buffer in some ways in that regard. But I think by and large, a lot of people think of it as an authentic space. Uh, and there, there are limitations to it, uh, to it uh, compared to face-to-face -to -face presentation. But for example, somebody's social media profile in a lot of ways is self-curated, meaning that People choose and select what they want to share with people. It may not provide a full picture of a person's life, what they struggle with, or it may disproportionately affect uh, 
people's perception of them thinking that their life is good because people tend to show the good moments. But we had the same problem when digital cameras and uh, and other cameras and video tape machines came out. People started accusing people of making home videos that only recorded the good times and therefore were documenting an inauthentic presentation of the family. So these kind of arguments have existed for some time. I think what it really comes down to is the scholar who's in, who's who's heading the research has to be able to explain how this is unique in its own context and and acknowledge those limitations as they exist to dispel some of the naysayers because there's going to be people in any discipline folklore even though it's a smaller discipline still wrestles with this problem is, is there's the old guard that sees face-to-face communication and oral tradition as really the only means of true blue folklore I can't get on board with that, and I know a lot of other folklorists can't as well. But it's uh, it's where it's a point of disagreement, but not a point of divorce between us. I think even some of the the folks who were hesitant or fearful of the implications of digital folklore have come around to see it as one more piece of the puzzle, just like any other genre of folklore. You know, you're you're going to have different characters doing Irish folk dancing than you are on somebody who's collecting memes and sharing jokes in a digital space. They're just, they're different groups. So each of us come to those different groups and different uh, situations with our own expertise and interests. I just been lucky enough to to always study stuff that I found really interesting and cool. I mean, a lot of people have, have often like kind of scoffed, like you publish papers on a- fake Amazon product reviews. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, because that's a performance. You know, when people when people write a fake Amazon product review, it reads oftentimes like a real Amazon product review. You have to know the ins and outs of that particular website's culture and the web and the way that people typically review what people are expecting. You're putting on a performance. You're you're donning a character almost in in the cases of that. So yeah, there's also something I would add that has also plagued folklore in general, not just digital folklore, but the entire discipline of folklore. It's something that psychologists and folklorists by the name of Brian Sutton Smith called the triviality barrier. And basically, it's the the notion that anything that seems fun or playful shouldn't be taken seriously. And as many scholars of children's folklore will tell you, uh, myself included, and of digital folklore, sometimes playful, fun stuff is really interesting. It's a lot more fun to, to deal with, quite frankly. I have a repertoire of many dirty jokes that have gotten me into trouble over the years when I've shared them, but I've enjoyed the process of learning them because it's a kind of, it, because you see people in different lights. You see how people try to get others over with their intellect and with their their prowess at sharing stories. And so um, I, I think there's been some timidness at, at the newness of it, but and I, I foresee there will be a, another problem uh, going forward as artificial intelligence advances too. When is it? When is that still human? Uh, is is it folklore if it's if it's AI generated? You know, so those are our, the next arguments that I think are going to be probably taking place over the next ten years as that technology starts to depart from its infancy and start to become really sophisticated and game changing. You know, you mentioned that uh, a lot of people were resistant to the idea of folklore being folklore if it was being done through systems controlled by these multi-million dollar corporations. And yet I suspect most people wouldn't have a problem with you know the prison folklore work you've done where people are controlled by a system. So yes. there, there seems to be a contradiction in the way people want to think 
But the other thing is when I first came across your work, it was as the editor of a volume on Slender Man, yes. which was one of the primary sources I used for an episode I did on that. One of the things I found fascinating about that, that touches on something you were just talking about, is you mentioned that a lot of people were um, arguing that the digital folklore couldn't be folklore because you couldn't tell whether or not you're dealing with somebody authentically. But when you get into the subject of creepypasta, of which Slenderman is a part, it not being authentic is the entire point. Yes. How does having something that everybody who's participating knows is not real play into the broader um, issues that you were encountering in digital folklore? Let me start by kind of giving a little background on the term creepypasta, kind of where it comes from. Mm-hmm. And that because that kind of gives some insight into how it's taken the shape that it has. The, the term creepypasta comes from internet slang copypasta for copying and pasting. Basically, what would happen is people would copy and paste sections of stories and publish them on blogs or on forums or other communal websites where people would share short stories and things like that. But it was obviously copy and pasted because it had the same kind of components of it, uh, of the general story there. But oftentimes people would add little flourishes. They would change certain characters. Sometimes they would change certain words. Sometimes the contours of the story would slightly change. In essence, it would evolve. One of the key components of what makes something folklore is this presence of what we call repetition and variation. The idea that something repeats but it also varies over time. That's how something becomes traditional is it repeats, but it also varies. It evolves, it changes. So when you get a joke, it evolves over time when it's in different people's hands, when it's in different websites, when it's on different contexts, when it sees different people. So creepypasta kind of naturally evolved out of copypasta because rather than just making like copy and paste stories and whatnot, people decided to make it about creepy stuff, about horror stories, short horror stories that were meant to creep people out. It followed the same sort of tradition of copying and pasting, and certain motifs started to emerge that were often a component of these creepypasta stories. There was often some kind of dark, villainous figure, often with murderous intentions or something that was kind of messed up. Uh, they had something in for for some for somebody in the character, or there was some kind of psychologically distressing component to it. I think of like the Russian sleep experiment story. Of course, it, it uses the same kind of folkloric feel that uh, a lot of these traditional stories have had, and it goes into some. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but it goes into the notion of of something that folklorists call the folkloresque, which is the idea of something not being actual folklore, but having the feel and look of folklore. So it, it it's it's kind of, in a lot of cases, it's been used when like mass media publications want to monetize something that is organically started online, but make it seem real. Like one of the first early examples of this was like the Blair Witch Project. Mm-hmm. It was It was presented to audiences as found footage, as real, as something that was documented by people who were going after local culture. But it was actually just a stage production that was meant to look exactly like the real thing. And, and in fact, they, it was brilliant marketing at the time because it hadn't, that hadn't really been popularized and, and made a lot of people question whether or not what they were seeing was actually found footage of people in the last moments and days of their lives. So what we talk about in urban legend studies, which creepypasta is, is kind of an extension of, of the old urban legend or contemporary legend tradition where 
we have some kind of fantastical supernatural component affecting somebody in their everyday life. Usually there's some kind of connection in the story that we call a friend of a friend. Um, like, oh, the reason why it's authentic, why the story is real is because it happened to my friend's boyfriend's roommate. You know, it's always somebody that you can't quite exactly verify is, exists, but they're part of a chain. Like, oh, this happened to my roommate's cousin or something like that. We call it a friend of a friend. So there's that component to it where there's the inability to verify that it's absolutely positively not true that makes it intriguing to people. But when we get to creepypasta, I, I have written about and other scholars have written about part of the reason why we feel creepypasta has proliferated in the way that it does is because it ties very closely and, and mimics very closely a lot of the same pre-existing pre-internet traditions that kids and teenagers had as part of the socialization process when it came when it comes to sharing horror stories. So for example, you may think or remember stories about Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary is a classic example of a pre-internet creepypasta, so to speak. We wouldn't call it a creepypasta because it doesn't have the contours of, of being something that emerged digitally, but it it's essentially serves a very similar sort of function. The stories often told by teenagers or pre-teenagers, often at slumber parties or when you're out in the woods or someplace where parental supervision is maybe not around, where as a group, you're kind of testing each other's mettle by sharing a scary story. There's something fun in the thrill of the danger of a supernatural figure being able to have power over your life. Now, there's symbolic components to that, that you could say it's part of the transition into adulthood. And that's part of the appeal that like not having parental figures and dealing with the supernatural on your own as kids is appealing to people because it's it's a it's a psychological way of dealing with the transition in life that you're going with. But if you want to take it more of a in a fun way, people just generally like being creeped out. It's fun. And it's fun also when you do it with others, because when you get creeped out with other people, there is a sense of, uh, of distant safety when you're experiencing with other people like if i'm gonna die i'm gonna die with this other person at least you know even though you don't think you're gonna actually die but so you go through the same kind of emotional response and psychological response to the heightened sense of uh, anxiety or fear that comes from the story itself that turns back in on you and forces you to deal with those thoughts on your own and so because of that um, it makes the genre very appealing to a lot of different people because it's an opportunity to be creative, to take an existing story and put your own flourishes on it, therefore kind of showing your own prowess as a performer and purveyor of the story. But also on top of that, there's the connection to the youthful part of yourself that always like to play with those edges, particularly in the teenage years, this tween time, betwixt and between, to use anthropological terms, <laughs> where it's it's almost used in a ritual as a rite of passage in some ways. It's part of it's part of growing up hearing these particular stories. Creepypasta has enabled to take the campfire and bring it to a laptop or to a phone. And it's much more portable. One of the things we didn't have growing up with Bloody Mary was a visual component to it. There wasn't a text that we could read. There wasn't a scary video that's been edited to have a jump scare in it or something like that. There are different digital components now that that heighten the aroused state, whether it's through a jump scare, whether it's through a creepy image, whether it's taking elements of pop culture and 
bastardizing them by making creepypasta about a character from Spongebob having a suicide video existing, like Squidward's Suicide was a famous creepypasta, or Ben Drowned, a famous creepypasta, where apparently a, a corrupted or haunted video game started sprouting out these different kind of uh, messages to people who were using the game. It, it made people interested in playing the game to see if they would experience it themselves. I think there's a lot of people who are drawn to the supernatural because it's unexplainable. And with so much control in our lives and so much difficulty in just being everyday people, whether you're plugging away at school or working at a job or working on a relationship, you know, life is hard. And sometimes it's important for our brains to go into states of play to process different things, whether it's our own lived experiences or connecting with other people. And since a lot of people have issues with being alone or can get creeped out with being alone, sharing that experience with other people makes it more enjoyable. You know, you can say, oh, I didn't jump at the jump scare, you know, but you did. And like you can rank your friend's medal based on uh, on people's responses. It can be used socially to kind of corral things. So Yes, there is there is a general understanding that these stories aren't real, but they're written in a way that makes them seem very real. They're presented as factual, as this happened. And as it so happened with Slenderman, that story formed out of competition, you know, to try to create a, a, a photoshopped image that looked real. And people then took that story, created their own mythos around Slenderman and made these beautiful stories that range from very harrowing nasty things to even versions of Slender Man that were like cuddly and, and nice and inviting and protecting abused kids and things like that made that line of reality blurred for some people. And this is particular, and this is, and kids are particularly susceptible to that because they're still finding the boundaries of reality. And, and so while there is an acknowledgement that this is supposed to be fake, there's always the background, but what if I'm wrong? <laughs> and and that background, but what if I'm wrong, is part of what makes people want to play. They want to see if they're wrong. It's why people go to abandoned houses, you know, that they or or try to ghost hunt and stuff like that. They want to experience something beyond what they can reason. And so naturally, scary stories and things of that nature, especially shared with other people, are much more meaningful. You don't hear about crusades of creepypasta people typically who are just loners out there. It has to be shared in order for it to be meaningful to other people in a lot of cases. Not always, but in a lot of cases. It's a group activity, even with strangers, even with other people. I mean, people go on, you know, the successors to chat roulette and things of that nature and randomly talk to people just to converse. But creepypasta is one of those areas where uh, we've been able to see people take these stories and kind of run with them, be creative with them, have fun with them, be scared by them, but also kind of devise a sort of social pecking order amongst their peers in consuming them, uh, if not sharing them or creating their own versions themselves. One of the things that when I read the uh, edited volume that you had worked on that fascinated me about that, well, I should say two things. One was that there was definitely a number of papers in there that talked about the kind of pecking order of creators and consumers of creepypasta, you know, 
yeah. how, how scary can it be before you're out? But also, can you create one that's good? And good isn't just creepy. It's got to be something that we can see as believable and doesn't just come off as kind of dumb. Exactly. Exactly. It's the believability that makes it last. Uh, and, and this is and, and this is how we can see creepypasta as part of an existing oral tradition. Even though creepypasta is not oral, it follows the same sort of motivational factors and certainly has the same kind of social implications that urban legends had in years past. In, in, the, ca in the case of urban legends or contemporary legends, those terms are kind of used interchangeably. There's often a moral to the story. Be wary of people who are, have escaped from asylums or, or don't, uh, don't go out you know, making out in the woods because there's going to be somebody who's going to get you. There's, a, there's usually some kind of tacit moral component to it. There's not always a moral component to creepypasta. The goal is really just to freak people out. And that's where the joy comes from in a lot of ways is, is fantasy. You know, and and so in the case of Slenderman, uh, we've seen that fantasy extend to gruesome levels where people perceived it to be real and inspired crimes. And as a result of that, there's there have been people who have been wary of the genre because of the perception that it could influence dangerous behaviors or thought patterns, uh, and and kind of led to a sort of mini moral panic not too dissimilar from the satanic panic of the 1980s, where people were afraid that nefarious forces were infiltrating American society and corrupting the minds of susceptible youth and causing them to behave recklessly. There isn't, I don't think, an inherently reckless component to creepypasta as a baseline. There may be people who use it for targeted use to, to try to freak somebody out for, with negative intentions. But generally speaking, that has been something that has been used for camaraderie and for building narratives and for people's own performative skill development, whether as tellers or creators or sharers, you know, being able to be a good filter for what's scary and what's not also helps develop your reputation. So these are all different components of the social being that are impacted by the sharing of folkloric narratives. Well, one of the things that really struck me, like a lot of people, I first became aware of creepypasta due to the popularity of Slenderman. And this is before there was an attempted murder that gets tied to that. But it was fascinating watching that develop because when you start looking into the case of the murder, and I have an episode for anybody who's curious, episode 42, get, this gets discussed in detail. So if you want to know the details, go back and listen to that. But one of the things that really struck me was that there was this very definite issue of psychiatric conditions and also social ostracizing that was at work in that case. The more I read into it, the more it became clear that creepypasta was not actually a problem here. The girls were having a similar focus on other clearly fictional characters, including characters from, for example, Star Trek. It was more the fact that they were so alienated and ostracized and that one of them was uh, suffering with a particular form of uh, schizophrenia. Any one of which by itself wouldn't have caused this, but altogether created this just perfect storm of trouble. Yeah. But it was easy to blame it on the creepypasta rather than the more complex problem of how do you get adolescents to not alienate each other. Absolutely. And 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 I think also the particular version of Slender Man that those two girls were fantasizing about was one where Slender Man was coming to rescue them, to to help them. 
because mm-hmm. they were facing social ostracization. Um, so it's an example of the creepypasta being utilized as, as I mean, folklore is adaptive. People people utilize it to, to suit their own needs. Um, so this was a way for them to tap into a part of their culture, but also try to find a way that they could escape some of the pain that they were experiencing as well. Mm-hmm. And so their version of Slender Man was one who was coming to rescue them. But also had this kind of dubious component to them that required sacrifice, which is where things get haywire because the traditional Slender Man story is not one of, of sacrifice. It's one of one very akin to the Pied Piper story. It's the Slender Man story is the faceless stranger in the windowless van that can snatch kids away in the night. I mean, that's what the real initial symbolic power of the character was, was that it was this faceless bureaucrat in you know in a suit that people couldn't see but kids could and was being led away to never be seen again was where it started in the case of the crime it seemed more like they were searching for comfort in the character rather than looking for direction on how to subsequently the act thereafter uh, and it, and it's it's mostly anomalous i mean we haven't seen other slenderman copycat crimes that have taken place since then. I think people have taken a step back from creepypasta after that happened because people had this sort of initial reaction that this is, this is, it's like playing with matches, you know, like eventually someone's going to ignite something and and it's going to start a fire, but that's generally not been the case, but people have still retracted nevertheless. And And it's kind of given creepypasta somewhat of a negative connotation or have made parents certainly more aware of it. And it can't be understated how important it is in child development, teenager development, human development, even adults, for us to share stories. I mean, we are communicative beings by nature. Humans in in general are. I mean, I know there are introverts and there's extroverts, but most people yearn for connection to something deeper than themselves, whether it's in their community or society or something supernatural that goes beyond it, uh, even into religions. People like having something that is part of their life that they don't have full control or understanding of. Part of the mystique of that is part of what makes life interesting for a lot of people. It's it's not until those visions have been perverted that we tend to see that as negative, you know, as has been the case in a lot of other crimes that have been done in the name of Satan or whatever boogeyman was around at the time. One of the things that I found really fascinating. So when I first came across Slenderman, I was part of kind of organized skepticism. And there was a lot of kind of furor over how can people believe this thing? It's so clearly false. And, you know, as I began looking into it, I realized this is a lot like when I was a kid and, you know, in the early to mid 80s and professional wrestling was becoming popular and people were worked up over how can these people not tell this is fake? And in fact, the audience for Creepypasta and the audience for professional wrestling both know it's fake. That's part of the fun. And it just struck me that those of us who were, you know, feeling high and mighty and that we could see through it, the, the fact of the matter is we didn't get the joke. You know, we it's not that we could see through it and nobody else could, it's that we couldn't see through what was really going on and everybody else could. <laughs> Right, right. Yes. And and in defense of pro wrestling, though, because I am a fan since the 80s, uh, it's one of my guilty pleasures. I I would say one of the differences is that with pro wrestling, while the, the outcomes are predetermined, the action 
is still very real. The, the, the injuries are still very real there. The, the physical component to it, as well as the physical social aura that comes with seeing it in person is a real experience that people are elevated by. It's, it's just like when you go to a, any kind of sporting event, like part of the roar of the crowd gets into your blood and draws your adrenaline in. It makes you more susceptible and more willing to play along because you're part of, of what's going on in sociological terms, we would call this probably a play frame in some ways, you know, um, like we're willingly entering into this frame where we understand that when we're here and we're doing this, this is how the rules bend and act slightly differently. You know, if someone comes running down the streets and, and yells, what you're going to do, brother, in your face, you might call the police because you're like, what is this Roy Rage case doing in my face? Uh, whereas in pro wrestling, you know, you know that the atomic leg drop is not far behind if you hear those words. It's a different kind of cue for you that in that context and in that setting. Creepypasta, I think, in the same way, when you're surrounded by other people who know that it's not supposed to be real, it makes it more enjoyable because you can kind of play along like, yeah, this isn't real, right? <laughs> right? You know, like there's nothing and 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 just the kind of because you can only be 99 percent sure that one percent is what you cling to. Mm-hmm. And, and and also because you want to you want to believe that there's something crazy going on. You want to believe that there are super strong people who settled their differences in the middle of a ring. You want to believe that that there's something bigger than ourselves out there. I mean, and, and pro wrestling is bigger than life. I mean, that's part of it's, it's, it's an exaggeration of human emotions and storylines and things of that nature. So there's, they're, they're not that different in that way, but they don't always carry the same amount of personal risk unless you do something called legend tripping. That's one of the, yeah. (laughs) So, so if you actually start going to some of these supposedly haunted places or these certain places where these stories say danger lurks that's when you add another layer to to the cake i think of an example i'm from maryland originally so i think of a a story of a place called ilchester and it's a, it's so small that there's it's not even on the map anymore because it used to be basically the home of an old Jesuit school and uh so no it's all overgrown it's all basically abandoned and whatnot but people believe that if you go there on a full moon and stand by the abandoned train tracks in front of the tunnel with your car and honk it three times and flash your light three times, you'll start hearing a train. Or if you if you wait long enough, someone will emerge from the tunnel to greet your car and your car won't start. And so what do people do? They drive there to the tunnel to see if their car won't start. And, and actual injuries have occurred in the, in the course of doing that. So it made the legend dangerous, I guess, technically. But unless someone's out there trying to set off pranks, it's it's about the performance of being there that makes it meaningful. By saying that I verified this myself, it takes the stipulation one step further. You know, it's saying, okay, we got to prove that this isn't real. So let's go to extreme methods to make sure that we can say this is definitely not real. <laughs> when it's a lot safer to just be like, yeah, this isn't real, right? You know, and just kind of play with it. It comes back to play. And, and how important that is in normal cognitive function. You know, even the most uptight of us need time to play. And creepypasta is an avenue to do that in a creative way 
with familiar contours to it because it's folkloric. We rec- I mean, part of what made Slenderman stick so well is it sounded so much like a real story. It had components to it that made it seem like it was part of a tradition that it wasn't actually a part of. But then new generations come who weren't privy to that discussion. I have two kids. They're six and four. They've asked me many times about Slenderman. They hear about him and talk about him at school. They've asked me if he's real. And, and I've showed them my book, <laughs> which is which is not quite their reading level. But I, I'm proud to say that my my oldest son has called me a Slenderman genius because <laughs> I know so much about about him. Often have tried to instill in them that you don't have to be worried about Slenderman. You have to be worried about people. Sometimes, you know, people are dangerous. Supernatural creatures don't exist which I'm sure someone out there listening right now is going, yes, they do. Um, But someone's yelling at their podcast player. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This guy is a quack, you know, and, uh, and I may very well be, I I haven't experienced uh, supernatural occurrences in my lifetime. I've always wanted to. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I, I know that impulse. I I mean, that's part of the reason why I think I was drawn to being a folklorist is I love hearing the stories. I love hearing people's experiences. I love hearing the variations in the stories. Um, When I've taught all over the United States and I often bring up Bloody Mary and I'm always fascinated to hear about how it just slightly changes in different parts of the United States, how, you know, where I grew up, it was, you had to turn the lights on and off three times and say Bloody Mary three times and other people's, they had to flush the toilets or some people, they had to have candles. Sometimes it was five times, not three times. There was a magic number component to it. I see the repeating of the story, but I also see the variation as it goes along. And that's what makes these things last. It's what makes something like Slender Man last. What makes uh, creepypasta laugh alas is is not just the ability to copy and paste it but to bring it to new groups and bring it to new contexts to new age groups to new settings and see how it develops it's, it's, it's rather organic it's not just an element of the past that has filtered its way into our consciousness it's new people experience it and make their own spins on it and that's how these things survive as they transmit well, and in the case of a lot of the creepypasta, you mentioned the legend tripping earlier. And one thing that I know your own work and that of others is documented is sort of a reverse legend tripping or reverse ostention where rather than go out to test and see if the thing is real, people will go out and create something to make it look as if the thing is real, which is in of itself kind of a fascinating reversal. It is. It is. I mean, and again, it speaks to the performativity of this kind of uh, this kind of narrative is that is that people have taken what was just a copy and paste story and have brought it to physical manifestation in some kind of a way. And this is part of and this goes back to part of why I knew digital folklore studies had to be studied is because, yeah, there's going to be stuff that exists only online and maybe always will be just digital. But there's also going to be a lot of stuff because we are hybrid individuals. We live in the physical world. We live online simultaneously. We're doing it right now. I'm sitting Mm -hmm. in my physical room, but I'm also online with you talking to you in this podcast. So like we are in a hybrid environment right now, but we don't typically think about it that way intentionally. It's just more of an assumed reality that most of us experience. So it speaks to why it's important to study digital folklore is uh, is understanding the human condition, understanding how people express themselves through various means and how they take bits and pieces from the real world and from the online world and then 
curate them into their own experiences and share them with others. That's what's really interesting to me because it, it's, it shows that repetition and variation. It shows that, that traditionality. It shows that it's being shared, but it's also showing that it's different when it reaches different audiences, that they put their own spin on it. It hits them in a different way and it causes them to perform and create in ways that they might not otherwise have done so if they hadn't been prompted to do so. Now, I know that you're going to have to get offline in a few minutes here, but I've got one last question for you, which is if somebody is unfamiliar with but curious about digital folklore, what are some stories or locations you would suggest that they look up? Ooh, uh, that's a good one. The Slender Man is Coming book, I can recommend, certainly. You've referenced it as well. Yep, I've read it. It's good. I recommend it. <laughs> It's a little academic-y, but I think most people can follow along with the the general stories uh, that are in there. There's a lot of uh, folklorists who do work in digital culture. I recommend the work of Lynn McNeil, uh, Andrew Peck, and Robert Glenn Howard uh, are some of the other folks who do a lot of great work in digital folklore studies and studying different groups of people in those contexts. My work is it's starting to get dated because I haven't done a, a lot of stuff in digital folklore for a few years um, myself, but I've done work on Amazon product reviews. I've written about digital hybridity and how people split into different spaces. And I'd be happy to give you some of those articles if you'd like to share them with your audience. Um, oh, that'd be fantastic. Well. Yeah. I, I I would also recommend it's, it's 10 years old now, but it has a lot of the same initial truths. If you want to learn more about digital culture at the turn of the 21st century and about how this technology has infused into the way people interact. My book, The Last Laugh, Folk Humor, Celebrity Culture, and Mass Mediated Disasters in the Digital Age is uh, is one that I think uh, really talks a great deal about digital culture and where it's come from. And uh, yeah, that's I guess off the top of my head, those are the ones that I think of. Well, thank you so much for your time. I, no problem at all. I appreciate it. It was just, this was great. I haven't done a, I haven't done one of these podcast interviews in a while, so this this was great fun. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spoo